This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Karen Magnuson Beale, who has always been fascinated by names. Her latest book, What Linnea Saw, A Scientist's Quest to Name Every Living Thing, is an insightful look at the life of the 18th century Swede who developed the modern system of naming organisms. Carl Linnaeus lived at a time when Europeans' view of the world and their place in it was rapidly expanding. Linnaeus, a traveler and explorer in his youth, later sent his students to the New World to gather as many new plants and animals as they could find. Beale, who lives in Gilderland, writes in such a way that the reader is left to make discoveries as the story unfolds. There it was, seven heads, seven gaping jaws, countless needle-sharp teeth. The seven heads seemed evidence enough to Linnaeus that the creature must be a fraud. Up close he saw that the threatening teeth and two clawed feet had once belonged to weasels. The body was covered in snakeskins, carefully glued together. Linnaeus figured that imaginative Catholic monks in Prague had created this semblance of the dragon in the apocalypse to frighten their parishioners into goodness. When Linnaeus told people he met of his unveiling of the hoax, word got out and the dragon was worthless. Claiming to be worried that the mayor would seek revenge on him for his part in devaluing the treasure, Linnaeus hopped on the next ship, onto the next ship to Holland. I love that. <laughs> I was lucky enough to watch Karen teaching a class at Farnsworth Middle School. This was years ago. And she told the kids who were very serious and listening hard to throw out the adjectives, throw out the adverbs, that the verbs move the sentence. And in that passage, you've got such wonderful verbs, and it ends with this hopped, <laughs> hopped on the boat to Holland. I, I just think that's great. It puts you right there at a moment in history, and also kind of exemplifies a central theme of the book that science is separating fact from fiction. And here's Linnaeus as a young man presented with this so-called wonder, and he can immediately see that the feet came from the weasel and that there are different kinds of snake skins taped on it or glued on it. And I thank you. Thank you for writing that, and thank you for reading it. (laughs) Thank you for enjoying it. (laughs) So just tell us, what led you to this topic, what what led you to write about? We've all heard of Carl Linnaeus, but I think few of us know much about him. I I have always been interested in names. I'm fascinated by people's names, by the names of things around me, and I think um, I have always wanted to know what everything was called, and it's very similar to the way Linnaeus was when he was a child. He continually was asking his father for names of plants when they walked in the fields and the woods. And um, kids have a huge capacity for great knowledge, much, much more, I think, than most parents and adults feel 
is possible by children. I, kids will collect uh, names of dinosaurs. Uh, Tyrannosaurus rex is probably pretty common. I think most five-year-olds who are fascinated by dinosaurs know many more than that. And they know great detail, in great detail, about those particular dinosaurs. Uh, kids will know different kinds of trucks and cars and birds, and they, they pick up on what's really key to them. And I have found in the, in the biographies of many famous people, those early inclinations in their childhood years often dictate what they do with their lives. So I, I pay attention to those stories. I think it's important. Yeah, and the way you portrayed Carl, I'll call him that, oh, as a young yes. boy, was his father had been a pastor, as was his father before him and his father before him, and it seemed like his mother was the one that was even more strongly adamant that he was to follow and into the ministry. And I just... How did you amass the kinds of details that made him come alive? What what did your research consist of? Well, it took it took me a lot of a number of years to really understand that this was a book I wanted to write. In fact, I think when I met you the last time, I was probably working on it, just not talking about it, um, because it takes a lot of digging to find the little pieces that make a story. It's like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. You'll find one piece and you'll say, well, that's interesting. Um, But then you need more detail to enrich it to make a story. Um, When you're writing about science, in particular the history of science, it's really important to make it a human story, I feel. The science is fascinating, don't get me wrong, but I think most People want to know the background of the scientist or how they got to be where they were and why they made that innovation. And it's usually a human story at the base of it. So picking up on those little details. For instance, when I I was doing some research at the uh, Linnaean Archive in Pittsburgh at the Carnegie Mellon um, University, in their archive, I found a file, and in that file was a, a dusty old uh, newspaper article from 1957 in which uh, a Swedish dignitary, I think it was Olaf Palm, was talking about his ancestors, and one of them was Linnaeus, who was related to someone who was burned at the stake as a witch. I thought that was fascinating. Uh, I don't know if you do this in your writing, but when I write, I find those tangents to be irresistible. I will take a tangent like that. It was a great-great-grandmother who'd been burned at the stake in Norway um, in a town where one of my relatives came from, and it required a great deal of digging to figure out all the details. Um, but I, 
I, I find those details are what make it really interesting. Of course, that particular story wasn't germane enough to have all the details that I found go into the book. So I have I know way too much about that poor woman <laughs> than I should. <laughs> Maybe it will be the seed of another oh, story. <laughs> a tragic tale, I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, one of the things that you did in the book that I found really refreshing was there were you had a narrative flow that was basically linear, but you would find things that were fascinating that maybe you decided didn't fit in the linear flow. <laughs> and in the copy of the book I had anyway, they were in blue. And you would break out these little bits of fascinating information. Um, one, for instance, was on naming in Sweden in that era. And you talked about how Carl, if he were just going to be staying where he had been, would just be Carl, son of his father. But because he was going to have an academic career, his father had chosen a name from a linden tree, and he used that same name. I mean, how did you come to make those little breakout sections? Well, not everyone likes what they call sidebars, but I do when there's something that I just can't resist putting in there. Um, I, I see the value of a book that, that unfolds uh, completely as one story. But there are so many, so trying to get into, tut in, let's see, what, how do I want to say this? Trying to feel like you're in the 18th century it's hard to do that unless you know all of the context. And then to put the context into the narrative flow would be hard. But in this case, um, one of, one of the, the, one that you, the example you gave, the reason I did that as a sidebar was because I felt it was really important because so many people call Linnaeus by different names. He used different names during his career. He used uh, Carolus Linnaeus as his as the written name on his books, which was purely Latin. But he often just dropped it to Carl Linnaeus. When he got uh, ennobled, he changed his name to a sort of ger weird German French <laughs> amalgam of <laughs> Carl von Linné, um, getting a little, uh, <laughs> you know influence of royalty or something there. And um, I just felt it was important to have in one place an explanation for why he had so yeah. many and I'm just names. ticking off some of the other ones that I was fascinated by. Um, children, it, you know, some biographies, someone's children isn't part of the main flow, but really, I think it was appropriate. His children were in a separate section. You got a sense of who they were, and they were mm -hmm. in and out in the book um, in other ways. And then paper technology, it seems so simple, but when you start thinking about it, you wrote about how just having a loose leaf for the different individual plants he was identifying just saved all kinds of time and copying and energies as he reorganized. Um, they were just each one of those little, I, I, I would look forward to the little blue sections oh, oh, as I went I'm through. I'm so glad. But I, another thing, too, that I loved <clears throat> the way you did, and I wish you could talk about it, you didn't lay out there a from the start everything 
you let the reader discover things as they were reading. For instance, the opening, which I just love, there's this strange creature from the new world, but you don't come out and say it's a raccoon. Oh. <laughs> you describe these things about how it would go into the students' pockets and take their nuts. And as the reader, you're mm-hmm. actively trying to piece it together. And it happened again in the, as a child, his father's gardens were famous and the kitchen garden mm-hmm. grew things from the mother's kitchen and she needed pumpkins and how clever they were to take the skinny little flowers and pinch them off and leave the plump ones. But you don't tell us until the end why there were no pumpkins. Well, the, the fact of the matter is he didn't know at the end of that chapter. That was one of his, that was a chapter, an early chapter when he was... 16 years old so he didn't not only did he not know about pollen and what its function was but the scientists of the day didn't know really either there were a few who did but it wasn't common knowledge then so i it wasn't until the you called it (laughs) x-rated lecture (laughs) well yes but yeah but as a writer did you purposely think Let's say with the raccoon, because I see what you're saying. There was a uh, there was a reason in that chapter that he wouldn't have known. So you're not mm-hmm. like withholding anything, but you're well, writing for I the modern day reader. Yeah, so you're writing for the modern day reader who, if he or she took, you know, junior high biology, would have an idea of that, and mm-hmm. certainly an idea of what a raccoon was. I mean, did it? I just wonder what how your mind works as a writer that you put those little clues in there for us to become detectives ourselves as we're reading. Uh, that was really quite intentional. I did it in, in, many, as, in as many chapters as I could figure out how to do it. So science is mystery. It's the asking of questions. It's the discovering of answers. It's trying. It's failing. It's trying again. But I think I wanted, I wanted my readers to come away feeling curious and ready to ask questions because science without the next generation, the one coming up, the ones that are out there on the front lines saying they want something done about climate change, without those young people, um, science doesn't move forward. And it's always been that way. I feel it's essential. So I so with every chapter where wherever I could make make uh it possible for the reader to wonder the same kind of thing that Linnaeus might have been wondering at this at that time and that's some of that is guesswork and some of it's I was able to figure out how he was feeling about something but I was pretty clear I believe um where where he where I had proof that he was wondering something or asking a question and I wanted I want readers to know to feel confident that they can ask questions and find the answers um, solve the questions that there's more to be there's more work to be done out there and I wanted that to come across in the book well and you with that theme you just mentioned um with climate change, you have maybe not so subtly (laughs) placed clues about that even 
back in this century where Linnaeus was having his students is when he was an established professor, go out into the world and bring back these samples of unknown species from around the world. And I think the man's name was Kalm, C-A-L-M, mm-hmm. who wrote this passage you quoted about, we would never do this to our forests in Europe, seeing what had been done already to American resources and this sense of just the new world was a place of great discovery, certainly, but also where (laughs) forests could just be leveled. Um, You kind of plant those little seeds in there. Well, Pear Com is especially interesting for us in this area because he was the only of Linnaeus's students who visited North America. Um, Linnaeus had 17 or so traveling students who voyaged around the world on sailing ships Um, They were part of his network. They developed his network of global correspondence, which is one of his big strong points. He He wrote to thousands of people and wrote thousands of letters to many, many scientists all around the world. Um, at a time when it took months for letters to get across oceans, and sometimes they never made it. But, but his student, Per Kam, who was a, a young man from Finland, came over here. He traveled. He, he landed um, in Philadelphia. He got stayed to stayed with Ben Franklin. He stayed with Ben Franklin <laughs> for a bit, and then he moved to the uh, formerly Swedish um, um, colony that had once been in New Jersey. And then he came up the Hudson, and he went out the Mohawk, and he went. He was the first scientist to uh, make a written description of Niagara Falls. So he he saw Cohoes Falls. He wrote about. The, uh, wrote about Albany and the entire area. So, and you also uh, actually you have a woman who was in the New World, um, Jane Boy, Jane Colden. That's it. Yes, who, as a woman, didn't have the same sort of education that men were getting, but drew these exquisite. They're in your book. I should mention that too. The book is just filled with uh, etchings. Maps, uh, Carl Anadis's own um, renderings, both of the scenery that he saw and also the plants and species that he was recording. It's just rich with that kind of detail. Mm-hmm. And you have one of her drawings in there. Yes, she's the um, first. She is our first American botanist. And she started off just as a young girl. Her father was a correspondent of Linnaeus's and several of his uh, colleagues. Uh, a plant was named after him. Unfortunately, a plant was not named after her. Um, that, um, that is, I think, a, a, a failing of science at the time. That uh, women. But how remarkable. The first mm. American botanist was a female that probably no one has or few people have heard of. So. First American female botanist, okay. I, I should say. Yeah. Yes. So uh, another thing is you learn so much history from this book because it's a time when the European idea of the world was changing mm-hmm. and the idea of man's place in the world was changing. Can you just talk a little about that? Um, 
Yeah, it was, uh, it was, I think of it as um, a period of information overload, which is so similar to what we are facing right now, where there is, we have social media and we have the internet. They didn't have those things, but they had the East India companies that were ships were going out constantly bringing back exotic plants and animals and knowledge that they didn't have before. So all these travelers were introducing ideas and thoughts and new new living things to those people in Europe who had a rather limited worldview. And suddenly suddenly botanists and zoologists well they were all called natural historians at the time they scientists wasn't even a word at that at that period um but they were trying to figure out what everything how everything was related and where it was from and what made it grow and and they were also at the very same time trying to figure out what things were real and what things weren't because so many travelers came back with stories about giant sea monsters called kraken that um, we you know have uh, seen in films and and books uh, which they claimed would take down whole ships but that really what they were talking about was giant squid uh, but at the time they had no idea what they were dealing with but it was it was all a big hodgepodge and people were double naming things and many scientists gave the same name to the same plant or animal and so people were unclear about what was real and what was what was false so that and, was yeah and Linnaeus gave us the system that still holds today Yes. Well, well, not entirely, though. No, I mean, it has the, changed a lot. The foundation for it, yes. this idea that a yeah. single person could come up with that kind of a organization. And what amazes me most about him, I think, is not just that he was able to sort out all that information, which is a huge accomplishment, um, but he also he had an infectious excitement that uh, drew students to him from all around the world. There was even, he even had a student who came all the way from North America uh, to study with him and later became one of the first physicians to teach medicine um, at the University of uh, Pennsylvania, at the very first medical college. But the other thing that I really applaud Linnaeus for is his being a clear communicator. He wanted to have everyone understand about nature. He, want, he thought even non-scientists should appreciate, enjoy, understand, explore the natural world. And the only way they could do that is if he and his students, because he always encouraged his students to write vividly and to uh, write so people could understand the, what they were seeing and even though they couldn't be there, they would get a really good feeling for it. So he was a science popularizer, and I think that's, we need more of that. We need more scientists who communicate can communicate clearly so that everyone understands the value of 
and and our the value of nature and the, our role as human beings and the biggest predator <laughs> the no not biggest but the most um, effective predator in the environment being the humans yes yes <laughs> and um, <clears throat> two things two paths we could go from what you just said one is on Linnaeus himself is an explorer. As, mm-hmm. as a young man, you have this chapter on how he went to what I guess is called Sammy Land, commonly used to be called Lapland, and mm-hmm. there's a wonderful picture of him in this garb. Um, one of his colleagues had wanted to know how the Sami could run so fast, and they had flat flat shoes, no heels, and he's wearing these seal skin boots, and this mm-hmm. all kind of medieval-looking um, outfit. But he, in this section where you're writing about that, you're um, almost brutally honest in saying <laughs> that, you know, he was a little condescending when he would describe the natives there and not look at them so much as individual people, as, you know, naming them by their trades or whatever. But nevertheless, he was an explorer. And the other thing... Um, well, I don't know. Do you want to talk about that first? <laughs> sure. His ex- exploration. I, his, he, was, he spent six months as a... He hadn't finished college at that point. In fact, he never actually got a bachelor's degree, he, but he did get his medical degree. That's a different story. That's in there. Um, but he did explore for six months the northern part of Sweden and Norway. Um, He he was studying the people who lived there. He was studying the animals and the plants, and he brought back many, many uh, previously unidentified and unnamed plants from from those cold regions up in in the polar circle. So... um, he, his explorations were really, I think, essential to his science and to the fact that he was able to enthuse his students about going out and doing their own explorations. I think his, uh, the way he brought all of that information to bear in his lectures and, and helped his students become even more curious about the rest of the world, I think was one of his great achievements. And the way you write about his relationship with his students throughout the book, from that opening piece with the raccoon, I mean, they're in and out of his house, in and out of his life. They're just... um, It's a little bit bedlam, I think. Yeah. A little chaotic. Going back to the other point that we could have taken off from in in your statement, which I think is so important... um, about understanding the role of human beings in the larger world. And you have in your book this idea that he categorized human beings in the same, I'm struggling for the word, <laughs> uh, same class, is it? No. A spe- he, put them in the same, um, he put them in the same group as, as, apes, as apes. Yeah. And that had and, not been done before. Right. Um, people were horrified by it. The, um, so and and I go into that in depth in the book because I feel even I wanted to look at him 
through an 18th century lens. That's why I included so much context about what was going on at the time and how people felt about the world at the time. But I also didn't want to let him let him or them off the hook with some of the things that that uh, we feel we have come to know since then. So that's why I'm, as you put it, brutally honest. Yeah. Um, I wanted, I didn't, I wanted it to be a kind of eyes wide open book, but I also didn't want to condemn him for holding opinions um, that were very common at the time. But he did split away from a number of the things that um, had were were common views held at the time. So he did he did realize he did come to the realization that that um, that the living things do change over time. He started to see that. And because of his writings and because he had put humans and apes, he saw the not he didn't see a blood relationship there. He saw a connection, though a similarity, and that's why he grouped them together. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of his writings and his organization, without which I think that Charles Darwin probably never would have been able to do the work that he did. No, it certainly seems the way you portrayed it to be edging toward that. Mm-hmm. At a time when it wasn't easy, you have in there the Pope at the time, Clement VIII, was it, <laughs> that, you know, banned the use of his book in in the gardens. And you point out that it's just a hundred years since Galileo. And, you know, when you're living in an era, any person in any era, none of us can see what it is. It's like the air we breathe, you know, the social mores around us. And mm-hmm. to have made discoveries that go against that, mm-hmm. you know, he seems like he had his own kind of courage to mm-hmm. have been able to do that. And yet he wasn't, he wasn't quite, he didn't, he wasn't quite modern. He still held back. But I wanted, in this book, I wanted to see him as he was um, and not judge him unduly because I did, I, there were, there was one book that I, that I read that, um, was um, so judgmental, um, so so critical. I guess is the better word, critical of him. And um, and yet there are other books that are the complete opposite. He could do no wrong. I thought there had to be a middle ground because no one is all one or all the other. So Well, I feel um, you succeeded with that because you've given us the context that he was living in mm-hmm. and also given us a sense of who he was as a person. But this time has gone so fast, and I wanted to talk a little about you. Could you just kind of tell us about some of your other books? Because it fascinates me that you've um, dedicated a lot of your life children's books. And the first one I think I read was um, the one on wildfires, which was a photography book as well as text. But you also have counting books and you have like, what? <laughs> I know. Is there a common theme here? Or, or when you... That's a good question, um, but I don't think that there yeah, is. I, right. I think there will be in, in my efforts 
in science, you can see a yes. But the rest, I think, is mostly fun. Um, and I'm hoping the science is fun, too. But I, the picture books are... I grew up in a family of creative people. Um, my mother was a children's librarian in an elementary school. Her sister was a children's book illustrator. My father's sister was her best friend because they met in art school. And so their two sisters were both children's book illustrators and an uncle was a children's book illustrator. So um, picture books were something I loved from an early age. And I, I love the visual part. So when I'm writing, even though I can't, I don't feel like I would ever make a good illustrator, but I really in, appreciate good art. Um, I, when you write a picture book, you're not doing the art, you're just doing the words, but you're trying to set up the art in a way. You have something in mind, and I love that creative part of it. That's why when I came to finding art for this book, I relished it. A lot of writers will the editors will assign someone from the art department to find all the art to go with the book, but I wanted to have my, I wanted to roll up my, you Oh, know. so you found the, the various they, illustrations? Oh, they're yes. wonderful. Like you can see the house where he lived with a huge garden around it, and you can just, you feel like you're, and his sketches when he first went to what I keep calling Lapland, Sammyland, mm-hmm. and he you know, he'd been in the lowlands, and he just had this wonderful sketch. It looked like a Norman Rockwell of the 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 humps of the mountains that he saw. He was a pretty just, primitive artist, but, but it was But it captured effective. it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. wonderful. So Thank you. what is your next project? What Are you working on something now for... I have several ideas that are roaming around in there, and I ha- I don't know enough about them yet to be able to talk about any of them. But uh, oh, I'm shoot. <laughs> they will have it will I can promise you a couple of things. They will not require me to deal with old Swedish and old Latin texts. Oh yes, um, and they will be about science. Whatever it is, will have something to do with the natural world. So. Well, do you have any closing thoughts for us? Um, how about if I read the last couple of paragraphs oh, of the book? Oh, yes, I love the last sentence especially. Good, that's a great ending. And I just, I think it's so important that you write this for young people. I learned immensely from this, so I hope old people will read it too. But <laughs> I I'd, hope everyone reads yeah. it. <laughs> Few people in the history of biology have looked so closely at so many kinds of organisms at that seemingly unimpressive man in the Uppsala bookshop. To organize all knowledge about the natural world, that man, one of the most influential botanists in history, broke the old rules of science and replaced them with new ones. The rule breaker became the rule maker. Carl Linnaeus was driven by curiosity and passion He was a brilliant yet flawed man who helped to organize the way we think about the natural world. Science is the pursuit of truth. Theories are the very nature of science and they are provisional. They are always waiting for new data, new tools, new ways to be analyzed. And as Linnaeus understood, 
for new scientists. Science remains a relay race. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> It was fun.